I don't know about you, but if there is one thing that totally just drives me up the wall, it's when property owners treat their tenants poorly. I mean, really, you're providing a service and there are certain expectations that come with that service. Now, I'm not saying that every landlord out there is bad or terrible. There are plenty of decent ones and a lot of you listen to this show. But the ones who aren't, well, they just give everyone else a bad name. It's not just about the money. It's about basic human decency. When you're a landlord, you've got a responsibility to your tenants. It's not a flippant business transaction. It's a relationship. And like any relationship, it does require a little bit of give and take, right? Now, I get it. Being a landlord can't be easy at times. It isn't easy at times. There are costs. There's dealing with all those various issues that come up. But that's part of the deal. That's what you sign up for when you decide to buy a bloody property and rent it out to people. And if you're not willing to do the work, then maybe being a property owner, property investor, all that stuff, it is not for you. I've heard stories, and I'm sure you have too, about landlords who don't fix things when they break, who don't respond to calls or emails, who don't respect their tenants' privacy. That's totally not okay. It's actually bad business. It's actually bad humaning. And as an example, I'm saying all this crap from me being a property owner, I own multiple properties, and also from being a tenant, I also rent where I live. I'm a rent vester. But I'm talking to the property owners now. You've got people living in your property, and they're depending on you to keep it safe and comfortable. You've got a duty of care, and if you're not living up to that, it's not frustrating. It's just wrong. A lot of the times, more so than not, there's a power dynamic at play, and some landlords abuse that. They think they can treat their tenants however they want because where else are they going to go? Well, that's not how it works, or at least that's not how it should work. I think we need to hold landlords accountable. We need to make sure they're living up to their responsibilities, and we need to make sure that tenants have the resources they need to stand up for just basic shat, aka their rights. This is a societal issue. It's not about one bad landlord or one bad tenant. It's about creating a culture of respect and responsibility. It's about recognising that everyone deserves a safe, comfortable place to live. And it's about realising that being a landlord is more than just collecting rent. It's being a flippin' normal, nice person too. So let's start treating each other with a bit of respect and kindness and humanity, right? Gosh, and rant. But anyway, we've got some great news. The great news is, Sharesies partner with us for this Tuesday episode. We want everyone to feel capable and informed to invest in shares and sharesies feel the same. And just on that, if you're not interested in investing in property and you can't handle the heat, get out of the kitchen. If you're sick of paying for repairs on the property, or maybe you're sick of being a property owner and having tenants. So you can invest in shares. Sharesies is all about creating financial empowerment. The Sharesies platform makes investing accessible with the support and education you need to get started and learn as you go. Get $10 added to your account when you sign up to the Sharesies platform using the exclusive promo code MMM. All investing involves risk, T's and C's and fees apply. So there you go. Thank you to Sharesies for getting behind the podcast. And thank you everyone for you know signing up to Sharesies and giving it a crack and starting investing. It's a really cool thing that you are investing in your future. Anyway, I've got a special guest joining us today to co-host the episode with me. My name's Glenn James. I'm your friendly rental property ranter. This is My Millennial Money. Let's get into it right now.
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Radio today on the podcast, I'm joined by the host of the My Millennial Investor podcast, Nick Bradley. Now, it is a little bit different today, not going to lie. Nick actually isn't with us, but I've been playing around with some AI voice technology and I've got this system and it's a program called Descript and I've trained it to use my voice and Nick's voice. Nick's voice works a little bit better because it is American. Like I did my voice and I said tomato in there and it said tomato in my voice and it does my voice a little bit slower. And finally, I have got permission from Nick to use his voice today and he will be reading out the question. So Nick, welcome to the My Millennial Money Tuesday podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me today, Glennie boy. I can't wait to get into these juicy questions. Before we begin, can I just say I think you're an amazing person and I want to be more like you. Oh, wow. Thanks for that. What a nice compliment. You're very welcome. Anyway, if you want to listen to a decent podcast, turn this stuff off and subscribe to my millennial investor. Yeah, rightio, turn it down. We're not here just to promote your podcast, but if you do want to have a listen to the My Millennial Investor podcast, Nick actually did an episode uh, recently on investing in AI. So you might want to go and have a listen to that and see how similar this AI sounds. Radio Nick, what is the first question today? We'll keep this one anonymous. The questioner asks, what should I do? My tenant needs to return to her country due to a family emergency. She is asking for a reduced rent and is uncertain of return dates. The contract was only signed a month ago. Well, Glenn, this is a tricky one. What do you think? Yeah, this is the question that provoked me to do the bit of a rant at the start of the episode. Now, it goes back to, here we go. I really think you have to always seek first to understand. Now, I wrote a comment in the Facebook group and I said, like, it's okay to tear up the lease and let them go if it is compassion and all that. Now, I think I misread that a little bit when I made that post in the group, uh, but rereading it, you know, uncertainty around the return dates. So this individual wants to go back to a home country, doesn't know how long for, and while I'm away, I need guarantee that I've got a house to come back to and cheap rent. So a couple of things, always have compassion in these situations. I'm talking to you people out there who don't have compassion and just treat uh, your tenants like income sources where it's actually a person or a family behind that stuff. So what I want you to do is work out the nature of the reason. And this really, I think if it was one of my tenants and they asked for reduced rent due to a family emergency, I'm getting on the phone. And if it's near me, I'm like, that's fine. We're having a coffee. Because if I'm in a position to help you, I need to know what I'm in for. And this speaks to the, you know, the property investment world. Like if you're a property investor, you just can't live on the line yourself. You can't be living week on week. You know, one of my properties was just empty for four or five weeks. You know, it didn't hurt me financially. But if I was living on the line, 
that would have been catastrophic because of, you know, maybe mortgage repayments or other living expenses. So as a property investor, first and foremost, don't go down this road if you're living on the line. You've got to have your own emergency buffers and all that stuff, right? And this is so fascinating, this question, because there's such a lot to unpack here. So I'm having a chat. What you need to do as well is reverse engineer it. Say to them, well, do you want $100 a week reduced rent? And if the amount is $100, what you could do is like, okay, well, if this went on for 10 weeks, 10 times 100, that's $1,000. I'm effectively giving you $1,000 as a gift. So back engineer it or say to them, hey, I'm cutting up the lease. I'm terminating it. I won't charge you any money to go. What I can do is pay two months worth of storage for all your stuff and moving costs, if you want, out of the goodness of your heart. But again, when we have these decisions and these questions that come in, we need to get as much data. And I always talk about this, getting data on the table. So the tenant has asked for a reduced rent. Okay, how much a week? They could be thinking, oh, they just want $20 a week because that would really help. Okay, well, sure. I'll entertain this for two months, $20 a week. If you're not back by then, well, some hard decisions will need to be made. Um, their rent will increase again, or I'm happy to you know, <laughs> cut up the, uh, the agreement and you'll have to sort to move your own stuff out. Life is tough. And as you as the property owner, like you're not a charity, like we don't expect you to be funding everyone's life, but it's that balance of compassion, looking after people and nature of a family emergency. Well, what is the nature of that family emergency? Let's find out. Okay, what country are we going back to? Because, you know, there could be a difference between different countries. If it's, I don't know, Canada, there could be some really good social support services that will help the family member in need. Or is it uh, Vietnam, where there might not be as much social support? I don't know anything really about Canada or Vietnam, but like the two differences. And I reckon I've got the right to ask these questions if you are asking me for money, because that's what the tenant is doing. Hi, can I please have some money? Okay, well, sure, but there might be some strings attached to me giving you my money. So if it is mum or dad or whatever is getting a hip replacement, they need me to be there. We think it will be three weeks. We think it will be four weeks. Not sure. I'm hoping for four. Okay, well, sure, we can help out, can reduce the rent. You've said $20 a week. I can do that. Or you said 100 I can do $50 happy to help, but there needs to be some type of line in the sand where we come back up for air. However, the other side of it, a family emergency, dad's been diagnosed with cancer. It's not looking good. We don't know how long this is going to be. He's had to stop working. Uh, there's no other siblings or family members to help. I could be gone a year. So I really think while it's reasonable to ask for some type of humanity and compassion when you're a tenant. As the property owner, I also think it is reasonable to ask these questions and for you to actually say, okay, if you were going to guess, what would that be? Because then we know the worst case scenario. I reckon as a property investor, as a property holder of any good financial steward of your own money, you want to always try and calculate what the worst case scenario is or the downside risk. So if this individual has said, I would like $100 a week rent reduction, I reckon it's going to be two months, you know, $800-ish could be my maximum liability here. Now, on the other side of the coin, you might be strapped for cash. 
again, what I think you could do is you got to get this person on the phone, have a coffee with them if they're in the same area and just be honest. Hey, I actually can't afford to help you out with hard dollars because hard dollars is potentially for a lot of people and you know the facts say is a rent reduction. I can't afford to do this. However, I am happy for you to vacate and I will let you out of the lease. I'll waive the break fee. So if they're in New South Wales, on the fairtradingnewsouthwales.gov.au website, and you can just search, you know, breaking a fixed term agreement, wherever you are, whatever state, because this is all state-based, it says mandatory break fees may apply, which is payable based on the stage of the agreement. A break fee is a penalty tenants agree to pay if they move out before the end of the fixed term. So again, in New South Wales, if the mandatory break fee applies, the set fee payable is four weeks rent if less than 25% of the agreement has expired. And then three weeks rent if 25 to 50%, two weeks rent 50 to 75, and one week's rent if you're 75% way through the agreement. So as a renter myself, in New South Wales, they're really like, you really don't have a 12-month lease. Realistically, the 12-month lease there is for the benefit of the tenant, not the property owner. Because as a tenant, you know your maximum liability at any stage when you sign a lease to walk away from it, it's not paying out the rest of the 12 months, it's four weeks rent. And I really like that. And this is coming from someone, again, I own properties and all that stuff. I'm a tenant. And for my own financial plan and for my own personal goals, I've just got in the back of my pocket. Worst case scenario, if I find a house and I want to buy a move, well, I'll just pay four weeks, three weeks rent, whatever because I'm in a position to do that. So realistically, the good news is in New South Wales and a lot of the states are changing, the lease are really there to protect the tenant and give the tenant options, which I agree with. So what you could do if you are strapped for cash, say, look, hey, want to help as much as I can. In my position, I can only let you walk away without paying a break fee, which is in this case, if they were in New South Wales, four weeks worth of rent, if they were paying $500 a week, $2,000. So I really think it just comes back to getting as much information as possible, finding out what the situation is. If you are in a position to help out, do it. You'll never be worse off from helping someone else. Put yourself in their shoes. And even, you know, I'm probably saying this more so particularly with a property owner's hat on, because the rental market is strong in most places, you'll get another tenant easy. I'm not a big fan of this person leaving all their stuff here without some type of agreement in place because however long this piece of string is, if it hasn't been chatted about, you don't want to end up with no rent coming in and a house full of someone's crap. All right, so a couple of people said in the Facebook group, Kira, consider if it was yourself in that scenario, I'll chat to them and discuss what option is best. As others suggested potentially ending the lease if it's long-term so they can pay storage for their items, which is much cheaper if long-term. I'd return the bond and find someone else without charging fees. Wouldn't be hard in the current market. So similar to what I've just said, what else have we got here? Catherine, if you give her reduced rent, then all of her things will remain in the property. If she doesn't return or didn't return for several months, you will have to deal with all her things. Just something to consider. I like the idea of letting her break the lease with no penalty. 
because then she could move her things to storage, which would be cheaper for her and not make it your problem. And I've just thought of something else that we could maybe discuss depending on the timelines. Vicky said, terminate no cost because she would likely leave anyway. So that's a very pragmatic thing. You know, you're terminating no cost, there's compassion there. So it's how much compassion will your financial situation allow you to give? Michelle said, give her four weeks reduced rent and then discuss option to end lease. Louise said, I would offer to let her break the lease now and maybe in a month's grace finding a new tenant before keeping any bond. I don't think it's reasonable to keep it at a reduced rent while she's far away for an unknown length of time or give her permission to sublet. And that was the idea right there on the sublet that I had when I was reading the above comment from Catherine. Could we somehow, if this person has a trusted friend or network or something like that, or I don't know, Airbnb or some university accommodation or something, allow someone to sublet a fully furnished house or an apartment And we both agree that, hey, it's going to be at least two months or something like that. So that could be an option. But with that as well, as the property owner, I personally am against doing that myself, the whole sublet thing, because I've got this thing in my life where I don't want your craziness, your wildness, your unpredictable life, your problems. And I'm being very dramatic and it probably sounds a little bit harsh. But all I'm doing is saying, I don't want all this to become my problem. So if you do sublet, well, there's just another cog in the wheel. And what if they've agreed to sublet and then the subletting person takes off and doesn't renew and all of a sudden it's all my problem. Look, it's a great discussion. And I've asked the commenter in the Facebook group if uh, just at the start of pressing record here, if they did decide to do something and I will um, let you know if, they reply before the end of the episode. Radio Nick, what have we got next? You asks, hi, what's your opinion on consolidating the car loan with your mortgage? Two brokers told me different things. One broker said that consolidating the car loan with our mortgage will be better because the interest on the home loan is smaller. The other one said that consolidating both loans will make me pay double the amount of the car in the life of the mortgage. Thanks so much. Well, I'm personally not going to the broker who is keen to do it because obviously they're a bit thirsty for business, maybe. On the whole, consolidating onto the mortgage, it's never a good idea to do that for crap you consume. Be it a lounge, be it a holiday, be it a car, be it a friggin' steak dinner or a nice holiday, all that stuff, even like stuff that ends up on your credit card, like your living costs. Oh, I've got all this debt. Oh, I've got to refinance and cash out the mortgage and clear our debt and everything's good. Well, no, everything's not great because you just moved the debt. That's all you've done. Now, just in relation to using your own mortgage to fund your car, if you are to do this, and we'll just say it's a $30,000 car, get the broker to split it as a second mortgage of $30,000. Don't refi with a new bank and it's all just on there and you're like, yeah, I'll pay the $400 a month extra onto the mortgage to pay for the car. Well, you won't. And a lot of the time, if you are going to set up that $30,000 separate split, you'd want to make sure that's paid down within four years. And you won't because we're human and we like the path of lease resistance. So if things get a bit tight and you're like, oh, I'm paying $400 a month on that mortgage for the car and the minimum's only 90 or 70 or 50 or whatever because they're always going to set it up as a you know 
likely, I'd imagine, a 25 or 30 year long loan term, you might go, well, I'll just pay the minimum for a while. And that extra money will put into our budget because we need it to live. Next minute, it's been eight years and you've still got that car loan split. Often, if you have a mortgage, the car finance rates that you will get for cars are pretty much the same as your home loan. I'm talking 1%, maybe, maybe two. And I'd be more in favor of you getting a car loan, but not more than four years, but also putting maybe 20% into that car loan because you want to make sure that that debt is paid off within the first four years of you having that car. And by putting a 20% deposit into the car, realistically, that means at all times, the car will probably be worth as much as you owe on it. So if your circumstances did change two years later, you might have a 20 grand loan left because you put a deposit into the car, you can sell the car for $20,000. Now, I don't have a huge problem with people getting car loans as long as you follow some guidelines. And I'll put a link in the show notes to my car loan blog, but we don't want more than 50% of the household net take-home income with stuff that has a motor in it, stuff that's going down with value. So if you're a single person, you earned $80,000 a year, half of 80 is 40, you certainly would not, not, not want more than a $40,000 car. And that's probably too much. So use the guidelines, a deposit into the car, no more than four years long, no more than half of your net take home in terms of asset value with stuff that's depreciating in value. So yeah, there's a link in the show notes, check out that. But yeah, I'm not a huge fan of putting anything on the mortgage. Let's just leave the mortgage for uh, the home. Now, the reason I personally don't have a car loan is because it will slow me down. There is more pain in my life transferring twenty dollars or $30,000 over in cash to buy something that's depreciating like a car than it is to say, yep, I can sign up for $120 a week or whatever that is. So for me, my personality, I always pay my cars from now on in my life with cash because I've fallen into the trap before. I've had car loans and you know there is that carve out. The car loan that I did have was salary package at work and it actually worked out um, a better position for me. But from now on, if I'm buying a car, upfront cash. And I ended up spending less and not spending too much in the value of the car. So, all right, we will take a break and then I'll come back and we're going to talk about podcasts. We're going to talk about other fun stuff. And Nick is with me for a couple of last questions. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Radio, we are back with the community segment of the week. It is brought to you by Sky Wealth. You know, we talk about all this money stuff, all of the income comes in and the expenses go out. If you can't work, where's your income going to go? If you can't work due to accident, due to illness, we've got to make sure you've got income protection. If you've got kids, if you've got debt, if you've got dependents, you've got to make sure you've got some life cover. Speak to the team at sky.com.au forward slash MMM. That's sky.com.au forward slash MMM to get your life insurance sorted. Please, 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 please. We asked everyone in the Facebook group, how did you increase your income? Brittany Lee said, husband has a side business, but honestly, the main one was when he realized being loyal to a company was costing him 30 or more thousand a year, and he finally changed and made a world of difference. That's awesome. Are you being blindly loyal to a company that is not paying you what the market should be? It's a question, isn't it? An easy way to increase your income is to ask for a pay rise, particularly if you haven't had one for a million years. If you've been there a million years, I would be reviewing that for sure. Talia said she increased her income by stop buying crap. Yeah, amen. Leone said, printed out my last three months of statements, highlighted non-essential spending, now have $4,500. Anna said, Uber Eats and DoorDash was making $1,200 a week extra sometimes. In Uber Eats and DoorDash? Oh, wait, it was a comma. (laughs) She cut out Uber Eats and DoorDash and sometimes she was making extra $1,200 a week, I hope. Gosh. But this was the thing, right? Like, we've only got four levers in a budget to pull. Increase income, decrease expenses, review a line item and tweak a category or cut something out completely. That's all you've got. Amy said, changed industries, a totally different job than what I've ever done. New entry level role is double my previous wage. Wow, maybe I need to do that. Emma said, moved to Australia from New Zealand. Welcome to the island, as you like to call it, the West Island. Or do we call it that? I don't know. Sophie said, online surveys, smash them out while commuting to work on the train. Jonah said, I became, or at least presented myself as wanting to be a subject matter expert in a niche, but very important part of my organization. This helped me become more valuable as an employee. And I ended up getting three pay rises within one year of returning from maternity leave. So good on you, Jonah. Here's one here. It's from Lauren. I haven't read it, but I can read the first thing. Perhaps unorthodox. Ooh, scandal. And certainly unexpected. Ooh, keep talking. But went through a messy firing slash resignation with one employer Tempt in government to make connections slash upskill slash test my value slash earn that casual loading. Nice, nice. 
kept my LinkedIn, quote unquote, looking for work on the whole time and got headhunted for a role that pays almost double the role I started with 18 months ago. Lauren, unorthodox is the new docs, whatever that means. Unorthodox, you've got to do things differently and you're absolutely killing it by stepping out, testing things, getting that casual loading and yeah, good on you. Anyway, we're going to bounce out of the community segment of the week. Thanks to sky.com.au forward slash MMM. All right. Radio, just some housekeeping in the My Millennial Money World. The My Money Journal is back. Some of you will remember we created this journal a few years back and it's sold out. So we wanted to do another print run. The interactive journal will help you to get your thoughts down on paper and start achieving your goals, find clarity for the season of life you're in and make progress in your life that impacts your financial life too. Head to mymillennial.money to order your copy now. All right, Nick, what is the next question? Manhart asks, was wondering if someone or even Glenn could give advice on doing a podcast as a side biz. If you've done it yourself before, what are the startup, variable and fixed costs? And is there a way to get some returns on your podcast in the early stages or this is unrealistic? Hashtag career goals, hashtag careers. Okay, so good question. And I actually asked Manha what her subject matter of expertise might be. And she is looking at doing some type of self-development podcast for people in their 20s and also discussing identity struggles that we're often met with in this age. So a couple of things. I reckon anything that you do in life, whether it is a, a business thing, a personal pursuit, I reckon if you're just doing it for the money, stop right now because it won't be as good quality because your whole focus is getting money. And when times get tough and the money doesn't come, you'll stop doing it. So why are we bothering at the start? if we don't have an actual underlying passion for what you want to do. Uh, the podcast here, My Millennial Money, I kind of wanted to do it um, as a career change, like Manha said. And I knew that in my industrial world, personal finance, that when I started My Millennial Money, I actually did see it as a business opportunity. And I also was done with what I was doing so I thought I need to give this a go because I had so much passion for it as well. And it really wasn't about the money because I was self-funded. So the first year or so doing the podcast, we didn't really, gosh, I don't think we made that much at all. I think the second year I made $30,000. You know, in that first year, if the focus was to make money, well, I would have stopped. So what you really need to worry about when you're doing side hustle passion projects particularly in the arts, I think, is it has to come from that hobby, that passion thing first. For me, it was, again, strategic because I sold my financial planning business and I really, really, really knew that the Australian market needed a money podcast and we were probably, I, would, I think, the first major personal finance podcast for Aussies by Aussies. But I, I could do it without the money for the first year. I was self-funded. So there was, it was just different. If I had to make money out of it, I would have stopped because there was no money there. So that's kind of my first thing. Like you've got to do things for the right reasons. And there's been like other radio networks, right, where they've made other money podcasts from scratch just for the ad rev 
and the content has been really crap. And the reviews say it as well. So when you do things with the money as the focus, it's usually a crap product, I reckon. What do you reckon? But in terms of when you start, like any pursuit, you've got to go at it. And everyone, if you're just starting a business or you're looking to start something, I recommend you read the book, The Dip by Seth Godin. And that talks about when you start something, it's going good. And then you get this dip where it's like, oh, it's not going good. And then there's this big hill that you've got to climb. And a lot of people give up when climbing that hill. And in fact, when I built my other business and my millennial money at my desk at all times, and it's even written on my monitor, I've got a little printout and stuck it to the bottom of my monitor. It was at my office. It was at this monitor where I'm sitting now. And there are an extract from the book, The Dip. And it reads, seven reasons you might fail to become the best in the world. You run out of time and quit. So Manha, you might be like, oh, I've got to do this career thing before, you know, next year because next year I start my next degree or whatever I'm making crap up now, but I need to do this. And then you quit because you run out of time. Number two, you run out of money and quit. So this is important if you are doing a bit of a side hustle, you need to make sure that you set some type of thing. Like we, with the My Millennial Money podcast, I said to John and Aaron at the time, we're doing this every single week for 12 months. No ifs, no ends, no buts. We have to do this for 12 months straight every week just to see. So we didn't quit because of the money. The third one, you get scared and quit. Far out, it gets scary, but you've got to be consistent. You've got to keep showing up. The next one, you're not serious about it and quit. And that speaks to the passion. Whether it is a side hustle podcast that you want to start or you want to start a creative business on the side, you want to start a plumbing business and all that stuff, it will get hard. And if you are not serious about it, you will quit. The next one, you lose interest or enthusiasm or settle for being mediocre and quit. So that goes into the interest, the seriousness, the passion, you focus on the short term instead of the long term and quit when the short term gets too hard. And the seventh one, you pick the wrong thing at which to be the best in the world because you don't have the talent. So I can tell you as night follows day, as a bill comes in the mail, going through a speeding camera, all that stuff, I 100% lived and breathed these seven things when starting and maintaining a business. You run out of time, you run out of money, you get scared, you're not serious, you lose interest or enthusiasm, you focus on the short term instead of the long, you pick the wrong thing at which to be the best in the world. So my question is, when you want to start a podcast, how serious are you? And I would even say for the podcast, I can tell you so much, like I've had so many people pitch me ideas for podcasts, right? And they want to start a podcast and they want to pick my brain and you know, people slide into my LinkedIn and they're like, oh, Glenn, can I pick your brain about all your stuff? And a lot of the times I send them a couple of links. I'm like, I want you to listen to these episodes that detail my story because if we're going to sit down and if I'm going to mentor you, I don't want to spend the first hour telling you my story. So listen to these two episodes. Then I want you to write down maybe 10 questions that you want to ask me. Send me those questions and then I'll see if I can help point you in the right direction. I don't think I've had anyone come back to me with those questions. It's funny, isn't it? So when you want to do something, 
you actually have to have the passion there. You actually have to have the talent. So what I want you to work out, Marha, is, is this a hobby or do you want it to be your career? If you do want it to be your career, I want you to not 100% put all your eggs in this basket. I want you to still build your day job and do all this because you can do the podcast stuff after hours and build it. I did mine after hours and built it. This podcast, My Millennial Money, I used to have a full financial planning business. I used to show, I hired an office next door that came up for lease and I could walk through, turn that into my studio. I used to show clients, I used to show clients, oh, this is where I record podcasts. So I was doing it in tandem. I was doing it on the side. And then what I want you to do is get a journal out. I want you to write down 20 different topics that you could talk about. 20 different topics. I used to say 10 but I really think we need to start planning for 20. Can you do 20 different episodes that you can talk about and start planning that? Because a lot of time people will start a podcast or a YouTube channel and yeah, they, they lose interest as you know Seth Godin's point was and they're not serious about it. So at least if you've got 20 episodes that you can record, you've got that. And then secondly, what you need to do, you need to work out who you're doing it for. And then you need to somehow promote it by word of mouth or social media in your own networks to the people that you are doing this content for. Anyway, we will move on, but you need to be where your future clients are hanging out. Whether you're a plumber, marketing consultant, a podcaster, a YouTuber, you need distribution. And I don't think I could create my millennial money again, if it didn't exist and Glenn James wanted to start a podcast tomorrow. It just, I just couldn't do it. And I really appreciate that when I think about the amazing community and podcast I've got. So I, I hold it very dear that, and I'm not taking it for granted because there's a book by Robert Frank. He was on the podcast and it's called Success and Luck. And yeah, it's just a really good read for any business owners and I think My Millennial Money and our success and all that stuff is probably a bit of both, to be honest. So there you have it. And note, I haven't actually talked about go and buy this microphone, go and get this cover art design for the podcast. No, no, like all that stuff will work out. Focus on your content first. Focus on your distribution strategy first. Focus on how you're going to get people to listen to it and share it with their friends first. Then go and get some recording gear. Google how to start a podcast. If you want to know, there's a guy called Sam. He's got a business called The Podcast Butler. He lives here just in Newcastle with me. I believe he edits She's on the Money. He edits Girls That Invest. And I've sent so many people to him and he can help you with the technical side. Like all that stuff will sort it out. So Sam, The Podcast Butler, if you want to start a podcast, he can help you. I think he's um, talking with Jess Spendlove, who did our health podcast because she's going to rebrand and relaunch that. But you don't need to pay for that. You can DIY. You know, I've heard podcasts that people have recorded on their iPhone. Dev from My Millennial Money Professional, he started um, just recording onto his iPhone. So you can do it. It's just how much you want to outsource and, you know, be strategic about turning it into an actual business. And then, sorry, I get a bit passionate about small business. If you do build an audience, how are you going to monetize? Because you will have to put more time into it. And that might mean you have to leave your job. How are you going to make money? It's going to be by ads. Is it going to be by introducing people to your own business and you become self-employed and you use the podcast as a lead generation tool? So you might only have 500 listeners an episode 
but you get clients from it. So it's hugely successful and it's not a hundred thousand listeners an episode because your metric is I'm niche and I get clients from it. Or do you just want it big and go the ad route? And there's not much money in ads. That's why I like I get show partners where we burn in the shout out, we work direct with them because it's more profitable for us. And I think I can add the best value and it's more of a win-win. Like we do those network ads where you might hear something about a tourism thing or a new show that's coming on a streaming service. Like we get some rats and mice from that, but the major money is in those show partners. So that's why I'm really thankful for our show partners for getting behind My Millennial Money. All right, Nick, what have you got? All right, next up is from Beck. Also, are you enjoying my co-hosting today? Yes, I am very much, but get on with it because we've taken a lot of time today. Okay, Beck asks, can anyone guide me to this podcast? I swear I remember a podcast from MMM or MMP about investment properties and not buying close by, same suburb, same apartment building or something. Or maybe I'm totally off and going crazy, but I feel like I've heard it come up and would love to listen to hear the whole message in context. Well, Beck, here is your message in context. Whenever we're talking about investing, the only free lunch you can get is diversification. So remember that old saying, don't keep all your eggs in the one basket because you've dropped that bloody basket, you get scramby egg everywhere, right? So what we need to work out is with your property investing, what are you aiming to achieve? Like, are you just buying a property because someone said, oh, you should buy this property, it's good and all that stuff. And you know, you're friends with a local real estate agent and hello, all the real estate agents, a lot of you listen, but a real estate agent, they'll want to sell anyone, any property, because as soon as the property sells, they get paid. So I don't take my investing and property advice from real estate agents. Sure, they're very knowledgeable for some particular areas, but when it comes to your own strategy, they can just back off for 10 minutes. Um, But look, what you're talking about there particularly in property and buying in the same suburb, it's pretty much confirmation bias, right? So you know the suburb that you live in, you know it like the back of your hand, you know that it's nice, you know that it's safe, you know that it's quiet, you know that you know there's a nice park down the end of the street, you know that the property that you own at the moment has done so well. This is just like heaven, why wouldn't I want to buy in this location as an investment? Well, the reason is from a you know, one-on-one investment point of view, if you own a property in your suburb and I'm watching The Last Kingdom at the moment, so if you own a property in Wessex, you don't need to buy another property in Wessex because guess what? You've already got property exposure to the Wessex market. So that's one-on-one. So you might go and buy in London, you might do that. You might buy in Cookham. If each of your properties was worth $500,000, round numbers, what do you think is more risky? Having a million dollar exposure to Wessex or $500,000 exposure to Wessex and 500 to Cookham? So it's a basic diversification play. If Wessex tanks and it falls, your property will fall, but we don't want it to drag down the whole portfolio. Now, in relation to the same kind of suburb slash close to home, I think we've, you know, discussed that you've got the exposure in the same market, but the same apartment building, that's even more of a hell no. Um, And it is tempting, like one of the townhouses I own, the one next to it was up for sale 
And I instantly thought, huh, should I buy that? That would be cool to own both of them. And the answer is no, I can deploy that capital in another market. Now, there is a carve out there. So if you were someone and you bought in a different location, a block of land, and you wanted to build a townhouse complex and have two townhouses, I mean, sure, you might have the two townhouses there. You own both of them. It's all easy. You control the strata. You do all that. I think that's different than being an existing owner in that apartment or in the same townhouse community and then buying a second one in there. So again, that goes back to strategy. So you said, am I totally off and going crazy? But I feel like I've heard it come up. So yeah, every time we talk about property and property investing, this does come up. It is only natural to want to buy a property in the same suburb that you're currently living. Now, I will say, if you are renting in a current suburb and you grew up there, so I grew up in a town called Berkeley Vale, all right? Go Berker. Berkeley Vale, hi. Am I right? Shout out. Now, if, for example, you know, I've moved away from Berkeley Vale, I don't own property in Berkeley Vale, and then I'm like, I want to go back and live in Berkeley Vale. So I, I go down and get a rental and I'm like, yeah, I'm renting here. Yeah, do I want to buy as an investment here? Well, the difference is if I'm buying in that suburb as an investment property or somewhere to live in, there could be a different outcome to if I do that or not. The first one, if I'm buying it to live in, I'll probably own it for seven years, got to live somewhere, it's affordable, I like the area. That's a lifestyle play. But if I am going back to Berkeley Vale to buy a rental property or an investment property, I've got to then go, hang on, is this suburb in its own right the best value to buy a property? You know, it could be a very high vacancy rate. So places are empty for weeks on end. It's unlikely in this market, but you feel me? So that's what I would say. It all comes back to diversification. Simple as that. Right. We might leave the official episode there for now uh, because, you know, we've talked about a couple of things and I've got to be ranty on a few things today being alone and no one to, to bounce off other than Nick. So thanks, Nick, for being here. I'll let you go to bed now. I'm sure it's late where you are at the moment. Thanks, Glennie boy. I had the best time. And again, I think you're an amazing person and everyone should listen to the My Millennial Investor podcast right away. Cool. So we'll end the episode there. What we're going to do, I'm going to do a bit of an after party. And in the after party, for those who want more information on hex and help debt, there's a heap of other questions that have come up in the Facebook group. And I will talk about that because it's still before the end of June. So we might have some time if you quickly pay down with voluntary payments. Uh, at the time of you hearing this, if you listen to it live, that is the 23rd of May. So you've got to get your skates on probably by the end of this week at the latest. But we'll talk about Hex and Help in the after party. And I'll put a recording at the start of the after party of the artificial intelligence reading a chapter of the Sort Your Career Out book in my voice. And you'll see how it isn't perfect at all. Uh, but it's kind of like me. And remember to download the help guide if you do have Hex or Help there and you want to find a little bit more about how the system works, whether you should pay it down extra before the 1st of June, but we've got to get our skates on ASAP. We'll leave it there. I'll see you guys in the after party if you are hanging around, but thank you to everyone. Bye.
We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports a variety of charities, and we encourage you to consider giving as part of your overall financial strategy. If you would like some giving options, or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to mymillennial.money forward slash charities for more info. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Okay, here is me reading the chapter from the Soy Career Out book. Um, yeah, enjoy. And also, the audiobook is actually available if you want to buy the audiobook. Uh, and the book's always on sale on Amazon. So make sure you grab a copy if you don't have a copy already. So here it is here. And then we'll come back and hang out and talk hex and help there. Is your income a result of market forces? Getting a pay rise isn't your only income increasing option. Shell will walk you through how this works later in this chapter. Let's pretend you're an employee working as a landscaper. You are 28 years old, paid at level five of the award, and that's $25.54 per hour plus superannuation at the time of print. You start early but finish early, which is great, particularly over summer. You love what you do, but you do have specific career and financial goals. Yeah, so as you can see, it's pretty terrible. Um, yeah, a little bit to come on that. But I mean, we'll probably use Nick's AI voice for any ads that we need to do on his podcast uh, because it's almost nailed and yeah, it's just going to be a lot more convenient uh, for ads and you probably wouldn't even notice if it was um, you know buried with some music for an ad. So there you have it. All right, so... The first question, it does come from Laura. She said, hi all, I'm looking into purchasing my first property to live in and potentially rent a room out and I just want to consider all my options. If anyone knows anything about the following or has been in a similar situation, I'd love to hear your experience. The first option is to buy a small place. I have more than 20% deposit based on the loan I am able to get considering I have hex debt. The other option is to pay off my hex and help debt, which is 35K, so I can borrow more than the value of the debt. But this means I will lose the money for a deposit and be way under 20%. In this case, I could apply for the first home guarantee scheme where I can have a minimum of 5% deposit. Are there any catches with that? Who covers the remainder of the deposit? I could not cover myself. If anyone has any pros and cons, that would be much appreciated. I just need to make a decision by the end of this month to not cop the huge indexation rate. Thank you. I actually sent this to Tim Kelly from TNS Lending. He's on our preferred broker panel. And here's what Tim had to say. It's correct that if you're paying off your hex debt, that that will increase your borrowing capacity, um, regardless of how much the debt is. But it's sometimes going to be more beneficial to some people than it is to others. So just check on that before you go ahead and, and pay off any debts, check with your broker to make sure that the money that you're putting into there, there's going to be a, a reasonable benefit to you to do that because, uh, yeah, it might not work out the way you hope. 
but it's easy to sort of check that and, and get advice on it before you sort of take any steps. With regards to the first home guarantee scheme, that's correct that it, you only have to have a 5% deposit and you borrow the other 95%. So it's got to be 5% plus costs. So if you've got stamp duty and legal fees and that, you've got to make sure that you're covering those in addition to your 5%. There's no, you don't have to fill in the gap because the, the bank's lending the rest. Um, it's like a, a parental guarantee where your mum and dad are putting up their home for security so that you can borrow a higher percentage. But when it comes to this scheme, it's the, the federal government is the one that's providing the guarantee. And the benefit of that is that you don't have the cost of lender's mortgage insurance. And a lot of the time, the lenders on that scheme will be giving the same interest rate as they would for someone who's got a 20% deposit. So it's a, it's a really beneficial scheme for first home buyers. There are a few sort of caps with income and property prices and um, you know, just a, a few things to keep in mind when you're looking into that scheme. So in this scenario, I think it's it's a, a really good example of when it would be very beneficial to have a chat with a broker and just run through these options and, and they'll be able to, with their tools, they'll be able to look at what sort of implication or benefit that you'll get from paying off your hex debt and how this might all fit in with the, the rules of the first home guarantee scheme. And you'll be able to plan ahead from there. So there you go. Thanks, Tim. And be sure to reach out to Tim at TNS Lending if you are looking for a quality mortgage broker for your first property. And that's what he really specialises in. Uh, and he can help people all over Australia. That's Tim from TNS Lending. All right. The next question from Emily, and she's a freelancer. Hi, I've read through the document and listened to the podcast, and I don't think it has been covered. Apologies if it was. But as a contractor slash freelancer who puts aside money for tax and HEX, I should make 100% of my 22-23 HEX payment before mid-May year. If I use paycalculator.com, I can work out what my HEX repayment will be for this year. So effectively, what she's saying is to avoid indexation, I pay it down before the 1st of June, and then I won't get indexed on some of it. So when Emily pays this down, this only works if she clears the debt 100% before 1st of June. If she had a $10,000 help debt, throughout the year, there is a compulsory payment that has you know, been accruing in the background on paper because she's self-employed of say $5,000. If she pays $5,000 before the 1st of June, she will still have to pay that $5,000 based on the compulsory payment. The only way you can get around this, Emily, is if you paid off in full and then on the 1st of June, there is zero balance. So then zero won't index. And then when you do your tax return, all the money withheld for the HEX or HELP, aka through the tax system, uh, there'll be more than enough to cover uh, your tax, then you'll get that refund. So it really only works when you're self-employed if you um, pay it off in full because regardless of voluntary payments, unless you pay the whole debt off, you still have to pay the compulsory. So that's a, that's a good one. Morgan asks, another help question. I had 2K left on my debt, which I paid off recently via a voluntary repayment. Will I receive the money back from my employer that has kept aside for my help debt back at tax time, given I have no debt left now? Morgan, the answer is yes, unless you somehow worked a second job and there wasn't enough tax withheld to cover that job. Simone asks, 
I'm moving overseas and still have hex debt. I understand this still must be paid. But when doing an Australian tax return as a non-resident, lodging your income from another country, do we pay tax on this income through Australian return or is it purely to work out our hex contribution? Number one, this all comes to do where your tax residency is. So you will be doing your tax in Australia, but only to work out the hex contribution. If you're a tax resident of another country, the tax is worked out there. And if you need more information on this, you need to speak to someone who specializes in tax where you are a tax resident. But for all those who didn't get that, if you are overseas, earning money overseas and a tax resident overseas, and you're doing the tax return that you earned in London at the pub all year through the UK system, you still have to pay the ATO compulsory payment. And a lot of people don't, but that is the law. And we cover this in the episode that we did um, with James Ridley from Atlas Financial. He's an expat financial advisor, so you can listen to that as well. But most of this I did cover in the downloadable document and the help debt bonus episode. All right, we'll leave it there. Thanks for your time and ears hanging out. If you are still listening, it's probably about three of you. But um, look, I'll see you later. Bye. Nice work. I was still hanging around listening.